Welcome to the 2.23am podcast. I'm Christine McDougall and I'm really excited to get this project started with our first guest, Dr. David Martin. David is the founder of MCAM, the international leader in innovation finance, trade and intangible asset finance. Actively engaged in global ethical economic development, Dr. Martin's work includes financial engineering and investment, public speaking, writing and providing financial advisory services to the majority of the countries in the world. David is the architect and founder of the Global Innovation Commons and is the author of the International Legal Framework for the Heritable Knowledge Trust and Heritable Innovation Trust programs. Thank you for being here. I hope you enjoy this episode. Today I am speaking with the wonderful Dr. David Martin. Uh, I met David uh, in 2006. Actually, I didn't meet him. I was listening to him on a recording when David uh, spoke with a great deal of clarity um, about the forthcoming events that led to what we now know as the global financial crisis. So welcome, David. It's a real privilege to have you uh, as our opening guest on the 223AM podcast. It is lovely to be here, and many, many congratulations for kicking this off. Thank you. So the opening question is, uh, what wakes you at 2.23 a.m.? Fortunately, the answer is frequently nothing, because I have (laughs) been blessed with sleeping well most of my life. But I have to say that on the moments that I do awaken in the night, and particularly in the early morning, what I'm typically awoken to is a solution to something that was floating around as an unresolved puzzle somewhere earlier the day before or the week before or something else. So typically my morning waking is with answers. Very nice. So can I ask you if we use 2.23 a.m. and waking at 2.23 from a metaphorical point of view uh, and the tagline for this, um, for 2.23 is a call to uncommon action. What at this time, at this stage in in your life and your work is the deepest calling? So that's the greatest thing about my impulse around both the 2.23 a.m. impulse as well as the synergy that I experience with it with respect to my life. And that is that, as I said, the thing that wakes me is actually the recognition that when I encounter what I believe to be an obstacle or a challenge, really what it is is the absence of the perspective in which I can see the presence of the solution or the perspective that is the thing that I've been missing. So it's not as though there is a sense that I am without 
and then I get something, what instead is happening is I get the sense that I have, for whatever reason, failed to stand in the right perspective to see the thing that's always there, which is the thing that is really where my life's passion is, which is the fundamental, not belief, but fundamental knowing that everything that we need in our lives, both at an individual level and at a community level, is present. And what is the perception of absence is either the lack of discernment to see something or the lack of ability to recognize the form in which it's coming. So we actually look for something else. And I think that the beautiful thing about 2.23 a.m. is really the awakening to the recognition that even while we are being breathed in our sleep, we are surrounded by the abundance that is fully sufficient for everything that we need. Lovely. So so I feel quite sure that some of the people that um, are going to be listening to this podcast um, may not have had yet, uh, uh, um, and they may have had that experience, but there's a level of trust in that experience that I think I think that you're speaking into that is is uh, is quite exceptional, and so I wonder if if you could speak a little bit about your your sort of uh, either journey or the process that you arrived at where you where you hold that perspective of the world, uh, which, as I'm interpreting, is that uh, rather than see. Um, the world from an absence of and where there are problems, it's actually where we everything that the everything that is needed to to sustain healthy existence in all domains is actually present in the immediate now. Yes, yeah, so I would have to pay credit and homage to, in some respects, my father, and I have to do that because my father uh, taught astronomy and taught the sciences for many, many years. So I grew up in an environment where inquiry was actually at such an enormous scale. If you think about it as a little kid, you know, I I grew up around big telescopes. So there was this love affair that my dad had with the great beyond. But what I loved about my dad's experience of that is his capacity to share his certain wonder, which no matter how many times he was at the back end of a telescope looking through a tiny little eyepiece, there was always something that was so perfect about the rings of Saturn or um, the galaxy that he was looking at or or the planet that was going through whatever transit of a moon that was making it interesting. There was something so magical about his experience of observing the natural order, that it was infused into my being at the smallest age. I mean, I remember sleeping on the floor of observatories and seeing him fall in love with the obviousness of the greatness of a universe that just defied containment. And so I grew up in this sense of everything is expansive and big and unbounded. And then the credit that I give to my dad is that he loved it. And his love of it went beyond just his own internal love of it, but he had this love to share it, where even if you didn't know you were interested in stars, 
and you didn't know you were interested in planets, and you didn't know you were interested in globular clusters or galaxies, you fell in love with his falling in love with it, which is one yeah. of those impulses that I think is something that we lose when we trivialize existence. Yes. So how how do you apply this sort of perspective uh, to business? Because it's, it is really... Um, uh, it's not the it's not the common modality of business practice as as uh, I've experienced it. Now, how how do you actually apply this 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 way of being in the world? So, if we presume that business is really about creating theater, um, and let me unpack that a little bit. So, the yeah. idea is that um, I may know something that is potentially how to communicate something very effectively. And I might e even have a somewhat personal way or a fairly nuanced way of doing something. But I watch other people struggle with how I seem to communicate and they don't. What gives rise to business or enterprise is the impulse to say, we need some artifact of manifestation. Maybe that's a good, maybe that's a service, maybe that's a technology but we need some artifact of manifestation so that the what I know to be possible becomes a common experience. And so enterprise, whether it's about feeding ourselves with food from a store or from a restaurant, or enterprise in the form of a technology or a service, is really about paving a way for people to receive the experience of something in a reliable and reproducible form. And so really the notion that the is condition of the universe, the is condition that says what we all collectively have or need or aspire to is present, enterprise is about forming ways in which people can experience that reality in whatever form is appropriate for them to engage. And so for me, I think what it does is it creates the certainty that as I become more sensitive to what others either need or wish to experience, the more appropriate I'm going to be at framing the enterprises which allow that experience to happen. And I think that the impulse takes you from taking resources and creating consumables, which is the old industrial model and paradigm that's broken, and it turns it into an opportunity where I say, no, my real objective is to make sure that regardless of the form that it takes, the value or the experience that someone has is something that can be shared. And so we move from an artifact to extinction model, which is the industrial model, to a perpetual generative utility model, which is the ongoing way in which, regardless of the form that it takes, the ongoing way in which we can engage. For example, a few years ago, it would have been unthinkable to even refer to a way to communicate as a podcast. Right. That, does, yes. that doesn't mean that we didn't have something to say and that we didn't have the impulse to share it. But what has happened is that impulse has found an outlet called digital recording and media, which allows us to sit halfway across the world, and have a conversation which now is a modality to share. Mm -hmm. And the impulse to share isn't new, and the wisdom or the knowledge or the insight isn't new. 
but the capacity to take it to scale is someone realizing that if the vehicle and if the form and if the modality is created, people will use it. And we are, in fact, the proof of that foresight. Right. So so am I hearing behind what you're saying that that uh, when we approach business enter- or, and or enterprise in, from this perspective – that there is an imperative that lies behind that, which is uh, which has to do with uh, really, uh, I'm going to use for want of a better word, really tuning in or listening or paying attention to both what is arising in the exterior world um, and uh, and uh, sort of um, and and how you're expressing that um, uh, from the inside out. I'm, I'm sure. So so there are a couple ways in which we can engage in the enterprise of enterprise. And I'm going to just break down some of the macro ways you can do that. One is I can look at people who uh, have a very clear expression of need. In the most extreme example, somebody without a home or without access to clean drinking water. And Mm -hmm. I can create an impulse around that which preys on the demand or the need that others have. And that would be what I would call a predation business model. I see an opportunity to exploit. I find the parties the most exploitable, and I create an enterprise around that exploitation. And that's a very common and very abusive business model. There is a second form, which is to say, you probably don't really want what I have to offer, but I'm going to create a series of illusions around it which make it look really attractive. So think in this particular example of the archetypal Marlboro man, right? He's a very angular guy, very good-looking guy, out on the prairie, all this kind of cool stuff. Now, you don't see that his lungs are lined with tar and that he's got you know, lung cancer, but that doesn't matter because what you know is that there's this angular guy and he's really cool and he's got this really great surrounding and he's on a horse. And so what you do is you create an illusion around something, and that's really the art of seduction, which is Mm. a very fundamental enterprise, which is used quite often. Mm. Then there is the enterprise of just responsivity, meaning that I see opportunity, people need to get from point A to point B, and the need to create energy flows or transportation or logistics or infrastructure movement Those kinds of things are things which are purely utilitarian. So that's another model, which is the ability to just kind of agnostically create the potential for people to use things. And then at the other extreme from predation is this notion that maybe you don't even know that there's a possibility that I know about. And what I want to do is I want to create an environment or I want to create an experience or I want to create a venue in which I can allow the capacities that I have to open up possibility for you to both understand that there's something accessible that you didn't know about and most importantly, I've given you the utility to engage it. And for me, that's the enterprise of emanation. That's the enterprise of saying there is something that is such beautiful, explicit, inviting, and essential to the human experience that there is a way 
to essentially emanate the possibility so that even if people didn't know they knew they wanted it, you create a compelling invitation for them to engage it. And that engagement-based model, which is really kind of what drives me every day, is the one that I aspire to not only manifest, but I also look for in the engagement with others. Because I really want to see us building places where the possibility I have and the possibility you have become not only a shared possibility between us, but I want that field to expand so that other people see possibility. Yes. That's beautiful. So, so um, there's a, I mean, and, and I know, obviously know a lot about your work. And so, but what I'd really like to, like to hear into is, is um, where at this time, using, using that background and reference, where is it that your, you and, and your enterprise are uh, really, um, where and what and how are you really seeking um, expression in this next period of time? What is that What is that, uh, that is unfolding for you? So we believe that the era of predation and the era of seduction need to come to their natural conclusions as the dominant model. And we believe that the, the possibility for utility and emanation really need to become a more ascendant model. And so I'll give you a couple of examples because it's easier to, to show an example. One of our dear, dear friends in Papua New Guinea is working with really transforming the idea of commodity, which, as you know, under the Adam Smith logic, only has value when people work on it and ultimately extinguish it at the consumption end. And she's saying, well, what if we invert the model and say that the enterprise, in this particular case in Papua New Guinea, our friend Teresa is working with coconut. And she's saying, what if we understand the coconut not as an extinguishing impulse, but we see coconut as a means of organizing and building community? Right. Now, what emanates from that is the ability to now take what used to be a linear and increasing amount of value up what we called a value chain. So you start with a mm-hmm. coconut on a tree, then you pay a harvester something minimal to pick it up off the ground, and then you pay a laborer something minimal to extract the flesh or to extract the, the water from the coconut, and then you put it in a shrink wrap Tetra pack, and then you put it on a ship, and it goes to a supermarket, and then you buy it after you run. And that's the mm-hmm. old model. But what if we now take that model and say, let's let the communities where coconuts grow understand the livelihoods and the life and the engagement of the person who's ultimately going to drink the coconut water. And lo and behold, you find out that coconut fiber actually becomes an ideal furniture or an ideal seating material for an automotive seat. And now all of a sudden, the person who is drinking the coconut water, which used to be a commodity, has now informed the community, which was throwing away coconut husks before, that it turns out that coconut husk, which actually has very interesting physical properties, including resilience and memory of position and all that kind of thing, 
now becomes an opportunity for that community to engage not only in the production of, but in the critical design of seating for premium luxury vehicles. And now what yeah. used to be a group that was only seen at the base of a supply pyramid now becomes part of a collaborative network where the imagination of the consumer and the imagination of the producer come back in to wholesome unity. And by doing that, what really creates out of the middle space is a collaborative environment where the producer-consumer paradigm is transitioned into a collaborative utilitarian paradigm, which is much stronger. And that, what I just described, is actually happening in East New Britain, Papua New Guinea, at a coconut plantation. Right. So, I mean, it's a, it's a, you know, even just listening to, because I know that, that the way that, that uh, we have largely been educated in, in the West and around business is that you would look at a coconut generally uh, as a commodity and that would be the limit of your perspective. And so this right. sort of circles back to your opening um, when I asked you what wakes it what wakes you at 2.23 a.m. and you talked about solutions. And so really, really, this um, by shifting our perspective, we're no longer or, um, you know, it's not about no longer. It's actually what I, what I normally see as a commodity or, as a, or even as a utility or something like that. Is, there, is it possible for me to actually see that or uh, um, uh, uh, invite a completely different perspective that opens up this world of amazing abundance, actually, um, the, the moment we shift that. Right. And yeah. the cool thing yeah. is, whether I'm a predator or I'm an emanator, if we use those as kind of polar opposites, but yeah. regardless of where I'm in that continuum, remember that the core element is there is some similar there is some similar requirements. In both instances, I have to be sensitive to others. In yeah. one instance, I'm, I'm sensitive for the purpose of taking advantage. In the other instance, I'm sensitive because what I'm looking for is the latent potential within all parties to form new ways of engagement, which at one yeah. instance might be beneficial in one flow and in another instance may be beneficial in another flow. But my enterprise is about building and maintaining and making whole the network exchange rather than trying to push everything into a linear progressive production to consumption yeah. extinction paradigm. And so what I'm yeah. explicitly doing is looking at the field effect of the network and then prioritizing the health of the network rather than prioritizing the asymmetry between the producer and the consumer. Right, right. And so it, um, it's a it's a um, an all in or a whole systems or a global um, um, or a universal perspective that, that that we're really inviting where where all um, you, you mentioned the field effects but all uh, stakeholders um, both living and non living are are considered in the equation. Yeah, and that's where, as you know, we we try to be very explicit about how we measure those things. But I think that it's really critical to understand that this is a divergent and real quite radically alternative approach mm. to 
the notion that what I'm going to do is I'm going to conduct enterprise however the heck I get there, and then afterwards I'm going to go back and do, quote, social responsible or philanthropic filling the gaps of the abuses that I failed to measure in the linear supply chain that I used with neglect. So if I know that I want to change the world like many people want to, quote, change the world, and my view of changing the world is I'm going to go run a profitable business, get as much profit as I can, and then, quote, give back, one might equally and potentially more responsibly ask the question, how do I understand the systems that I'm engaging enough so as not to create the poverty or the dislocation or the whatever the thing is that ultimately will be the recipient of my charity in the first place? Why don't I actually anticipate through my actions in the present the obviating of my impulse to solve the problem that my carelessness created in the future? Yes. And I think that's really where the the opening for real new radical conversation becomes possible because I think we've been so conditioned to believe in charity and philanthropy as a hierarchical way for businesses to be responsible. And what I am doing and what I actually encourage others to do is to say, can we imagine a system where the enterprise anticipates the future of its own poverty that it creates and then eliminates that at the beginning of the cycle rather than trying to address it with the profits being reappropriated inefficiently at the end of the cycle. Yeah. And, and you're, I mean, it's even completely different to because uh, I know that in a lot of businesses they're, they're, they're commencing with the place of, well, we're here, we have our business, and we want to have a percentage go to, you know, um, a, pro, a, a not-for-profit or, a, you know, some form of charitable gesture. But even that is, is quite often not considering the whole and, and the effects that, that the core business is going to have, and so what you're what you're inviting through this this perspective is is uh, looking at the entire field effect, uh, both in the present and potentially in the future, and uh, and really taking that into consideration in the original um, design and manifestation of the business from day one. Right. For Let me give you a, a very interesting, very crude example. A number of people who are quite enthusiastic about trying to deal with human trafficking love yeah. to talk about how important it is to get corporations on board to stop human trafficking. But yeah. very few of them realize that the industrial systems that force men typically from their homelands, from Sri Lanka or from Botswana or South Africa, to live six months or nine months away at a mine and work in just odious conditions and be surrounded by other people working in odious conditions who ultimately wind up being the consumers of, say, sex trafficking, Yeah. what we could do is we could actually imagine a model in which, rather than dislocating workers for near-slave labor-like conditions, we might actually take a step back and say, if we want to stop trafficking of humans or if we want to stop sex trafficking, we might actually reconsider the business model that says it's, quote, cheap to get displaced laborers away from their families for six months. Yeah. We might actually look at the fact that maybe 
the value we place on trafficking of humans would actually be more appropriately valued by making sure that we had work weeks that involved people going back home to their families. Yes. Now, we could argue that, well, Dave, that's going to be very expensive, and and, um, we'd much rather have charity fundraisers to talk about ending human trafficking Mm. than actually to do that. But I'm not sure that the total amount of money spent on ending human trafficking actually exceeds the cost of cheap airfares to let workers go home to their families. Yes. And I don't think most people actually do that calculus. And that's where I think we need to change the way we think. We need to open up the perspective that says that our callousness in the moment has a cost at some point. And building models in which we address the costs inefficiently after the problems are created is not a very brilliant way to approach the world. Yeah. Yeah, I could sense, you know, I, I know that um, this that, that even starting to look at that whole system and there's so many areas you know, well and truly beyond human trafficking and so on, that right. this needs to be applied. Um and, and, and my sense of it with behind what we're doing with 2:23 a.m. is that um, good people are waking at that time of the, of the morning, knowing that this that the, there is something you know, in either their expression or in the expression of business that they're involved with or whatever that is doing some form of that, you know, in different variations yep. and in different colors and et cetera, et cetera. And there's a level of fear, even terror, you know, that if I unplug from X, Y, Z, how will I sustain my business? And there's all of those pieces in the middle, you know, so you can look at the example that you used around the mines and the and the cheap labor and et cetera, et cetera. And, and I mean, that's, it is a, in a, in a, a business enterprise, a corporate structure, whatever, that's a, that's a significant um, it has a you know a, a domino effect across multiple dom- domains, and so that sure. circ- sort of circles back to the place where we started, which is you know you you awake um, with the sense that everything that you need is right there, and so there's a piece of this as well that that is about um, not just not just supporting um, the ability to to make that transition, but really really uh, shifting the perspective to be able to see that everything is actually there and um, and by by really building um, business and enterprise that has an all-in considered um, uh, way of engaging with everything that they do is actually not going to come at a loss. Right. And, and more importantly, that the balance sheet view of the world, which has been the dominant Western business model since the early 1800s, that the notion that a balance sheet or a profit and loss statement are the only ways to view the world is, in fact, an innovation for a period of time, but that time has come and gone. And we are now living in a world where we know that that type of worldview is not complete enough. <clears throat> it is not capable of existing in a more pluralist society. Remember that the balance sheet accounting was actually an innovation from Europe 
to help tyrants finance wars. Not surprisingly, okay. balance sheet accounting continues to be promoted as the way to measure the world in large part by economies who still have as a, a substantial driver of their economies war. And if you go back and say, well, you know, maybe what we need to be thinking about is by virtue of the metrics that we choose, by virtue of how we look and measure the world, as we understand that we have framed our metrics to understand our world in this equation, which we always want imbalanced towards what we call profit and away from what we call loss, the way we've accommodated that is create loss of opportunity, of access, of human dignity. We've created loss and we have created profit, but both of those creations are merely illusions. Profit was something that involved the careless and unthinking extraction of honor and value to the people we neglected. And loss is actually the disproportionate failure to include people in the celebration of the outcomes of our endeavors. And what we just need to understand is that while that innovation served the purpose for which it was created, we're now at a point where we can awaken a new humanity impulse around let's build systems and metrics and approaches which explicitly render both the cost and the consequence. And by doing that, by understanding that dimensionally Mm -hmm. rich space, we now have the ability when we wake at 2.23 in the morning to have insights which are merely our ability in our sleep to have our minds open up to perspectives that heretofore we haven't considered. Yes. So, uh, you know, I can imagine some people would definitely uh, want to put their head back under the pillow if they saw some of the consequences of their profit on their balance sheet. Sure. Um, yeah. Um, Probably so, put their heads under their pillows and hope they can hear the end of the the uh, the screaming of the ghost in their head because it really yeah. is something where a lot of things where you talk about people waking up with fear and apprehension and terror is actually mm. coming from your consciousness internally reflecting the neglect of what you failed to pay attention to in your waking moments. And so, you know, one of the beautiful things is I judge the quality of my engagement with others by the quality of how well I sleep. Yes. And when I awaken with that sense of unsettledness or ill at ease, my immediate impulse is to go inside and say, what have I been neglecting that something is trying to make sure I don't neglect. Yes. Yes. And that can even be uh, a more subtle thing as in uh, neglect of your own, um, something that you need to to continue to nourish yourself so that you can operate um, more wholly in the world. Yeah. Well, and it also can be a neglect of gratitude. You know, sometimes what wakes you is the awareness that you have been the unacknowledged beneficiary or you have failed to acknowledge being the beneficiary of the impulse to or from others. And so what you're awoken to is the recognition of, oh my goodness, 
I walked past something that was a gift from someone. I walked past the contribution someone has made. I've walked past the awareness that someone shared with me. And it's really an invitation to go back and say, I'm better than that because I'm part of a community that must be better than that. And that's the part of you that's waking you to say, you're better than that. Yeah. Yeah. So it, what um, uh, in in place of this balance sheet, can you say more uh, about the mechanisms that that you work with um, in your own business and also support other people around the deployment of? Sure. So we have a, a fundamental operating position that says that the energies that we need to engage in the systems are always present. And then on top of that assumption and that knowing, which is that there's enough energy to go around, we also apply a process we refer to as integral accounting, which measures both the inputs and the outflows of systems in six dimensions of value, where we talk about value as commodities or, you know, kind of matter and energy, custom and culture, or the optics by which we apprehend and understand what things are and how we engage them, knowledge, which is that capacity to transfer observations or experiences between members of a community, money, or the temporary storage unit of value, which is the way in which we can deal with the elasticity that exists between transactions. Technology, which is the ways in which we manifest or create the agencies through which others experience value. And then well-being, which is the capacity for everything to be engaged at liberty. So it's the notion of the completeness of the human, the completeness of the ecosystem in which the human operates, being fully understood and then being fully engaged to what we do. So commodity, custom and culture, knowledge, money, technology, and well-being are the six dimensions that we use to measure inflows and outflows. And then we try to understand how to use living systems to inform us on how we engage those things. So as we move through any enterprise, we try to understand the impulse of the enterprise in light of the way in which life happens. And so we study very closely things that are persistent, things that are generative or effusive in their ability to produce, and we try to make sure that the systems or the enterprises or the engagements in which we partake actually map to how things in nature, in fact, do the same thing. How do they persist? How do they generate um, new and replenish new things? And then how do they engage with their ecosystems? And for that, we look to things like sunlight and photosynthesis in a leaf and the consumption of the byproducts of plants for human consumption. And we we really understand those systems to look at how energy and matter <clears throat> play with perspective and culture, how they inform knowledge in its transmission, how they inform 
the exchange of value through money or currency, how those things become artifacts through which you can create efficiencies so that the system can actually achieve that well-being ideal of engaging with full liberty. And our systems and our approaches are trying to explicitly make sure we don't overlook any either energy flow or value that is explicit or implicit in any of the systems we engage. So, okay, there's, uh, there's a couple of questions that I want to ask to clarify around this. Um, first of all, um, you said uh, we, look, we make sure that we have energy we need to engage in the system is always present. So, say a little bit more about energy. Sure. So, and, and, so, and also, and also, how it applies because I, you know, how the, how you see this applying. Well, you know, I know business can be life, but you know, in in the in the in the sort of business scenario. Sure. So, you and and the listeners on this show will be undoubtedly aware of things like laws of attraction, um, which was a principle that's been made popular recently about kind of creating a field into which you invite energy. Um, oddly enough, there's a companion that doesn't really get talked about, which is the laws of repulsion, um, which is uh, <laughs> interesting and equally important. Um, but, but ironically, those those two types of energies actually both absolutely and, and metaphorically are are very important because the idea of energy as we know it, which, by the way, in any form, comes in some part of what we refer to as kind of an electromagnetic spectrum. And it's important to understand that the magnet component of that, the polarities, if you will, are created around not only the existence of fields, because energy can be in a field where it can amplify, it can energize, or it can provide just the presence of potential energy, or it can be in flow. So it's yeah. very helpful to sometimes think about it in in a social model. If we understand that the impulse when we see injustice is often to protest, what we find out is that there's energy in the system, which actually was created first by our neglect. If we think of a right. war that we want to say that we're opposed to, we we have, in fact, energized a system first by allowing systems like governments or like manipulative despot impulses to go unchecked. And so when we decide that it's time to protest a war, we actually often fail to understand that what what we really didn't do in the right time is we didn't pay attention to the systems that were building up and building up and building up where... We were buying our coffee at a coffee shop and we were shopping and we were engaging in trivial activities. And all the while, there was a system that was getting more and more unstable to the point where it became a war. Now, the question is, if we think of engaging the energy of a war, we're really actually protesting something way too late. And the energy that we're using is actually an internal projection of our callous neglect for the conditions that led to that war, as much as it is our objection to conflict. If we understand energies and systems, we would actually take the impulse to protest a war, and we'd say, 
where are we observing imbalances or injustice, and where are we seeing the conditions that give rise to conflict? And rather than protesting the war, let's use the energy of our opposition as a way to engage the systems in which, if unchecked, will give rise to conflict and war. Energy in that model, energy is entirely agnostic. We failed to care for it, and through just diffuse movement, energy started building up in this kind of latency approach, which then erupted into violence. And we make the mistake of believing that the moment of the eruption is the problem. But in fact, the moment of the formation of the conditions that led to the eruption is where the problem is. So if we want to be creative about understanding energy flows, we need to look at what gave rise to a expression of uncontrolled and potentially flaring and out-of-scale energy and say, we know from our understanding of the world that energy actually moves from concentration gradients. It moves from higher to lower. It moves from, you know, dense to diffuse. So if we see a dense and erupting energy, we know that it must have come from a diffuse and relatively anonymous energy. So understanding flows and understanding fields is actually central to being able to understand first where energy is and then more importantly, to engage it to actually have a different outcome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and so just before I come back to because I want to, there's a question that's arisen from that, but also you, you talked about sunlight and photosynthesis and so on, and, and I, I just want you to, so you're actually saying that you're applying some of these systems as business systems or enterprise systems, some of the Correct. natural systems as business and enterprise systems. Can you say a little bit more about that and why? Yes, and in, in fact, we we have been very fascinated by how many people talk about sustainability, as though somehow there's an ideal towards getting by. Yes. When I look at the natural universe, I see a universe that starts in every one of my days with this funny little object that comes up in the east called the sun. And the sun is this phenomenal ball of gas and hydrogen, helium, all kinds of other crazy things. And it's 93 million miles away, and it hangs out, and every single morning it shows up, and it just is light. And it's light, and it's on, and I didn't see anybody plug it in, and I didn't see anybody switch it on. It seems to be working pretty well. And I think most of us would critique its performance as fairly reliable. Um, (laughs) I see that the, the thing that the sunlight seems to always be capable of engaging is trees. Um, plants right. seem to, to like the, the thing that's happening. So there seems to be a relationship between something that's always on, energy, light, and a thing that always seems to say yes to that energy and light, which happens to be photosynthesis, which, by the way, I've never seen a tree kind of go, eh, not today. I'm kind of really tired. I'm not going to actually photosynthesize today. So I'm just going to kind of shut down, and I'm going to build an umbrella, and I'm going to hide under it. I, I've never seen that happen with a tree. So no. so you look at that and you realize that every single calorie that your body and my body consume comes from this little 
little chemical called glucose. And the glucose that we get, the that wonderful little sugar that is how we live, is the marriage of sunlight, the always-on, and trees, the always-on. And those two things getting together is how we actually live. And without that, yeah. we don't live. So for yeah. me, it's very easy to say, I don't need a complex you know, master's or PhD in economics or business theory or anything else to go. If I want to build a system that's going to be persistent, it's going to be generative, it's going to be productive, and it's going to have the capacity to be engaged, it's a pretty good thing to study the sun and photosynthesis and trees and glucose as a archetypal frame of an enterprise model of engagement of power, engagement of nature, engagement of magnetism and matter, engagement of all of those things. And if what I can do is then project that onto the impulses that I have, those principles can inform both how I engage, but they can also inform how I conscript all of the things in my ecosystem to actually take advantage of the energy that I perceive so that I can always have my metaphoric sun in the system, I can always have my metaphoric tree in the system, and I can always have my metaphoric fruit in the system. And that really, for me, becomes the real deep framing of what enterprise is about. Mm. Right. Well, you know, there's no question that that is a a very uh, unusual, uh, let me say, um, advanced MBA. (laughs) Yes. They don't teach this in most business schools. Yes, and and it's it's uh, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's uh, it sort of circles back to the to the changing well the whole conversation, the thread of the whole conversation that that no longer seeing a coconut as as a coconut that is has a commodity commodifying the coconut. It's it's uh, it's no longer commodifying a tree or the sun. It's actually really looking at it and going, we are without. Without us doing anything, we are part of um, a, a system that is far greater and bigger and, and more advanced than than the human mind um, uh, at this stage, and that has been successful for a very, very much longer than humans have been in existence. And uh, that 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 system may have something to teach us. Well, and I think therein lies the giant. If we can just play on the metaphor, that's the wake up call. The wake-up call that we really are seeing emerging in the collective space that we call reality is a wake-up call to saying we should stop pretending that we need to create models. In fact, I would take issue with even the use and the careless use of the word create. I don't think we have to create as much as we have to be able to listen, to engage, to decipher, to unveil to do all of the things that are really important work to say, if we see a system that is working, why don't we first pay homage to it and the knowledge that it implicitly has to offer us and then figure out how we can align ourselves to engage energy and matter the way that system engages energy and matter. And by approximating that, which, by the way, is very different from the impulse, which has been quite popular recently, called biomimicry, which is to actually caricature nature and turn it into technology. 
What I'm suggesting is that we really need to engage it, not mimic it, not pretend or assimilate to it, but actually let its knowledge infuse our knowledge so that what we're doing is building into a much more harmonious interaction rather than trying to take a path of saying, how do I improve upon or how do I view the world as though there's something inadequate that needs to still be, quote, created. I don't think that we need creators. I think we need stewards. Yeah. But to be a steward, you have to have perception. Yes. And and there's also another thread which where where is is a deeper thread that we won't be able to get to in this conversation. But I'm really hearing implicitly behind all of this is is uh, an embodied understanding that we are not separate. Uh, uh, um, it's not even separate. It's separate, um, arrogant or hubris. You know, we're not. That is not who we are. The the, the dominant or the dominion of humans. We are actually. Um, to a large degree, pawns of this larger system. Well, and that's where if what we can do is pivot from the hierarchical view of dominion and yeah. the ultimate kind of, as as archetypally have been projected for many, many, many centuries, the the, the peak of the created order, and and actually kind of blow up every bit of that paradigm and say, we are not the peak, we yeah. are not created and we are not in an order, what we are is we actually exist as constituent components of an ecosystem. And that ecosystem is calling for us to be more alert, more awake, and more collaborative in how we engage with the ecosystems in which we find ourselves. And really at the heart of the matter, enterprise, which is really the creation of the vehicle whereby multiple people can conspire to be part of a bigger-than-a-single being or a bigger-than-a-single-impulse rationale for organization. Enterprise is really an opportunity for us to both learn and teach as well as practice and engage. And if we now start thinking of our businesses, our social enterprises, our endeavors – as really something that starts with the currency of knowledge and perception, takes that currency and provides equivalent access to that knowledge so that anyone in the field can say, yes, I want to be part of those individuals who have that stewardship impulse. By, By building our enterprises first by the exchange and the transfer of knowledge and then by engaging people at liberty, you're really creating the ordinate poles around which the rest of enterprise can really start revolving. Right. So, um, just in just to, to circle back to the um, you and your work, and in closing here, um, I, I I know that you um, work a lot in the uh, intangible assets and and finance systems and so on and so forth. So, in light of what we've just been um, discussing around, because you know I wrote a question down: what 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 systems have humans created that are the most unstable? Do you just want to have a, um, uh, a say a few words around, uh, you know, the work that you're doing within some of these systems? Sure. So across every system, we would argue that 
thermodynamics and physics would tell us that a system would naturally either revert to a mean or essentially progress towards entropy. And that seems to be the dominant social narrative that we're supposed to all agree to. I don't agree to that at all. In fact, mm -hmm. I don't think that it's actually true. I think, you know, chaos is merely pre-ordered order, and order yes. is actually the reduction uh, in only one plane to what appears to be chaos in every other plane uh, because yeah. you've removed optionality from the other plane, so that's pretty chaotic. So I think that that whole illusion is nothing more than an illusion. But I think right. what what is important as we think about the the roles that assets play or even the idea of assets play, yes. we have to understand that the impulse to enclose is an impulse that has a number of really critical factors that need to be reconsidered. When I decide to interrupt the normal flow of energy and I try to control it, and I might try to control it by establishing rights to minerals, or I might have rights to ideas, or I might have rights to creative works. As mm -hmm. I try to control that impulse, I need to be very careful as to the reason why I'm trying to control it. Am I trying to control it because there's something very discreet and special about it that I want to steward? Or am I trying to control it so I can separate myself further from my fellow human beings or the earth? And there's a big difference between that. And we haven't done a very good job in our social models or in our enterprise models of understanding the difference between appropriate use and utility and separateness and exclusivity. And I think that one of the key things in working with the intangible world that we work with, which are things like patents and copyrights and trademarks and licenses and permits and rights to various enclosures of the commons, as we look at systems that have built those rights and then built systems of commerce that rely on those rights, what we're inviting through our work is a new conversation about moving from an enclosure and then separation model to a stewardship and invitation and inclusion model. And it's really important for us not to lose sight of the fact that as humans go through cultural transformation and natural evolution, the idea that says that everybody should have access to everything equally is actually probably less beneficial than saying, that we need to understand that impulses that I might have, impulses that you might have, may actually come with certain limitations that come from our own moral code, from our own values, that say that the, the things that I have or the ideas that I share actually are intended to be shared with some degree of directionality. We yeah. want to make sure that something is available. So we might actually put licenses or conditions or terms that say, here is the appropriate way in which the thing that I'm offering can be used. I don't aspire to a world where everybody has equal access to everything. I actually aspire to a world where the moral impulse and stewardship of an impulse gives rise to the appropriate communication of values so that a person doesn't just get my idea, but they know something about me 
and they know something about what I value. So my idea doesn't detach from me and become this disembodied impulse, but it actually stays with me and stays with the story of who I am so that when mm. people engage my ideas or my thoughts or my artifacts, they actually preserve a tiny energetic thread that includes this came from someone or this came from somewhere. And so what we see is a transition from a world of enclosure and separation into this explicit invitation to say, let's be inclusive in how we perceive, and then let's be responsible in how we steward. Right. Well, you know, um, I, what I'm hearing behind all of this whole conversation is, is uh, and it actually circles back to the very first conversation that you and I had, uh, which um, uh, I came to you because I was uh, generally, gen- genuinely passionate about really bringing people into a conversation of, around true financial literacy. And if you recall the conversation that you that we had was you asked me to reflect on the field effect of doing that. And right. uh, I wrote an article about it, which we'll link. Um, we'll put the link there. But uh, what I'm hearing through this whole thread is that in, in, in how we uh, create, um, I'm not going to use that word, how we manifest <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've been listening. How we manifest our, how we um, bring to life, bring into form uh, the work that matters to us in the world uh, needs uh, a, an all-in um, perspective, a deep consideration, a, 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 a mindfulness of the, the, the field effects in all domains, uh, an understanding of our deep intentionality around why we're doing that, uh, you know, this, it's a very considered um, and and cared for uh, um, embodiment of an impulse or, this, or, or expression of an impulse that you're speaking about. And that is the reason why the impulse around 2.23 a.m. explicitly opens up a space where individuals who are concerned and considered and compassionate have the ability to step into that notion of the waking impulse and examine what it is that that pure thought, that Mm. uninhibited moment, that thought that is merely inspired by the expiration of the breathing at night that you don't even know you're doing, what is it that comes out of that pure signal that can be the moments of time that we now engage to discern our position in terms of our readiness to engage in new ways. And I see this as a giant invitation to all enterprise to re-examine their core assumptions, their core purpose, and then enter into a dialogue on how we more appropriately engage our own activities and channel our own energies to achieve a much, much more equivalently accessible platform for humanity. And I think the work that you're doing through this venture is going to be an extremely important utility in the unfolding of that conversation with humanity. 
Well, on that note, which I totally agree with you, that you've spoken that in ways that I wouldn't say that, but with beautiful eloquence, uh, I want to thank you so much for making the time uh, to have this conversation. And I know that the questions that are going to arise from this will be will be uh, rich and wonderful. Thank you so much, David. Thank you for your friendship and your support and your care and the, the beautiful work that you do in the world, uh, which um, I truly value and honor. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much, Christine. It's a delight to be here. If you want more of 223 AM, then you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to the blog of 223am.com. That's blog.223am.com, where you'll find articles and interviews featuring stellar guests from around the world, plus tools and resources and much, much more. Follow 223am on Twitter at twitter.com slash 2 underscore 23am. That's 2 underscore 23am. Or on Facebook at facebook.com slash 0223am. Till next time, thank you for listening.